Amen. Thank you all. As we come back to Hebrews chapter 1 and the first four verses, we come again to this amazing text of Scripture, one we have spent now a little time in, and I hope as we've done so, you've been thinking about how glorious a text this is and what all it has to say to us. And so as we look at it again, um, we want to think about for a moment what it says. On a basic level, we've seen a collection of statements offered that speak of the preeminence of Christ, His glory, His majesty, certainly. And we've seen that it began with the argument that uh, God has revealed Himself fully and finally in the person of Christ, His Son, that uh, that same Son, Jesus Christ, is the heir of all things. The heir of all things. And we want to think about it again because we're going to come back to it. So you need to think about for a moment what it means to say that Christ is the heir, the appointed heir of all things. And yet, we also see that it's through Him, through Christ, that God made the worlds, the universe. Again, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. Now we continued on from there and saw two descriptions of Christ, that He is the brightness of God's glory. We spoke about how the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us something very specific about Christ, that He is by nature God. He has a divine nature. He is in one, of one substance with the Father. And so He is the brightness of God's glory and the imprint of His substance. The stamping we talked about of His substance, that He is just like His Father. And so we saw all these things, these descriptions. And again, they tell us more and more about the glory and majesty of Christ. But we also saw that He upholds all things by the word of His power. By His powerful word, all things are upheld such that if He stopped for even a moment upholding all things and sustaining them, they would literally fall apart. That is the power and glory and majesty of Christ. And then last Sunday we saw that He came on a divine mission of salvation. He, by Himself, purged our sins, the author of Hebrews says. Now again, He came on this atoning mission, this mission to uh, save us from our sins, to atone for sinners. And it makes the point, the author makes the point here, that He did this by Himself. And we were very careful to say He is not saying that this did not involve the work of the Father or the Spirit. What he's saying is that he did it in his own body, in his own self. He was not only the high priest who offered the sacrifice, he himself was the sacrifice. He, by his own body, purged us of our sins. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Because it says he also was highly exalted. That he took his place at the right hand of majesty on high. Not only did He take His place there, He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, He sat right at the right hand of His Father. Now this sitting says what? His work is completed. Now we know He still has a ministry that goes on as He intercedes on our behalf, offers grace and mercy, all these things that we read about in the Scriptures, but His atoning work is complete. In one sense, of this priestly work, it is complete. The atonement has been made. And so again, uh, He is enthroned there. And so we see, again, the beautiful picture of this outstanding Christology. In fact, really, it's important that we stayed this many weeks in this section of the text because it tells us so much about Christ. Imagine all that is said of Christ in these 
three verses we've already looked at. We're going to add a fourth verse. Uh, Today we want to look at this fourth verse. And so I'm going to read it again. We've read it often. Hopefully that will drill it into our minds. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, I want to draw your attention today specifically to this fourth verse. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, if you notice for a moment, as we want to look at, uh, we want to look at two points. First of all, an important understanding, and second of all, a superior name. But I want you to also notice that this builds upon what has already been said. It's not separated. It's part of the same statement that this one who by himself had purged our sins and took his rightful place at the right hand of the majesty on high, this one has become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I want us to begin today with this first point, which is called an important understanding. We have to be thoughtful as we approach a text that talks about Jesus becoming greater than the angels. We have to be careful about this. We need to rightfully divide what is being said here and rightfully think about what is being said here because it is true, it's the Scriptures, but it's important that we understand what is being said. If you hear this statement that Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, just take that first part, that first phrase for a second, that He has become so much better than the angels, if that catches your attention here and you recognize that it's a difficult wording, that again, Jesus has now become greater than the angels, if that gives you pause for a second, that's good. Because that means it strikes you that that's a little strange to say that, right? In the sense that Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, has forever been greater than the angels. Forever been greater than the angels. He is God Himself. And if we just go back to what has been said in this very opening to this letter... It says, through Him God made all things that exist. The angels are creatures. They are not eternal. That means that Christ created the angels. If we didn't find that clearly enough here, we would remember that in Colossians it says it very explicitly, that by Him and for Him all things were made. So again, it seems funny to say this. So I'm going to ask you to return for a moment back to what we looked at a few weeks ago. When we said that, the text says clearly right here, uh, turn here to your, look to your second verse, and it says that His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. Now you may remember we came to a similar point in this text. We said, wait a minute, how is Christ now appointed heir of all things when as eternal God He already owns all things? How can this rightly be said? My friends, it's very important that we think about these things and get this right because the Scriptures oftentimes will confuse us if we confuse these sorts of points. How is it that the eternal God 
who made all things, is the owner of all things, is more glorious eternally than the angels, can now be said to have inherited things, appointed heir of things, to have been now made greater than the angels, and to have now a name that is greater than their name. That he has now obtained or inherited a name that is greater than their name. Well, you've got to go back again to what we said. That was week two. Week two. There must be a distinction made between what we say of Christ ontologically, who he is eternally, and what he did in the economy of his mission in this world when he took on a tent of flesh. You might word it this way. We must make a distinction, although not divide, we must make a distinction between his divine nature and his human nature. And this can get confusing, so we want to be very careful about it. In his divine nature... He is eternally God, has always existed. The second person of the Trinity has always been the creator of all things and therefore over all things. Therefore a name greater than any other name, greater than the angels. No question about it. There is no way in which we can understand that it is only after His work of salvation that He became greater than the angels. That is not accurate When we speak of His divine nature, He has divinely always been greater than the angels, just as He has always been the owner of all things. But there is another part of the story, isn't there? The one who was always eternally God took on a tent of flesh, came into this world, added a human nature to His divine nature. Now this is a mystery beyond our comprehension. Just no other way to put it. How do we understand that in one person is a perfectly and fully divine nature and a perfectly and fully human nature. Well, that is something theologians have struggled with for 2,000 years. It is not easy to wrap our minds, our human uh, and finite minds, around such an infinite concept, and yet it is what the Scriptures teach us. That Christ, the owner of all things, creator of all things, has now been appointed heir of all things. And again, we're speaking, as we said then, of something to do with his mediatory role for which he entered the world. We've spoken often about the Old Testament pointing to these great offices in the New Testament. These great uh, messianic offices of prophet, priest, and king. And how Christ came as the perfect king. We spoke about how in Psalm 2 it speaks of this one, doesn't it? Who will come and God says to him, ask it of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. We looked at that at the time. That's an important psalm in understanding what he means when he says he was appointed heir of all things. He says in his work, in his work here in the incarnation, he not only came to be the perfect priest, Hebrews will make much of this as we move forward, he not only is the perfect sacrifice, it's what he said just a moment ago when he said he by himself purged our sins, but He also came as the perfect prophet. God had spoken in times past by the prophets, here and there, partially, but now He's spoken to us fully and finally in these last days by His Son, the perfect prophet. But my friends, He's also the perfect King. He is the heir of the seed, the promise of the seed uh, to Abram. Abram, who was made father of the nations. Christ, His seed, the heir of all the nations. He is the heir of the throne of David, but He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All these images coming together, pointing to this One 
who came into time and space, took on a tent of flesh, and became the incarnate Word. Fully God, fully man. Mysterious and glorious at the same time. That is how, in some way, the author of Hebrews can rightly say that the one who already possessed all things became the one appointed to inherit all things. It's also how he can say that the one who was always superior to the angels can be said to have now become so much better than the angels. Now, the author of Hebrews expects that this letter is going to be read. So I'm going to read today's text and I'm going to keep reading and I'm going to get to chapter 2 very quickly. And you're going to read there about being made lower than the angels. See, as Christ entered this world in His humanity, right? He became a man. That's not a fiction. That is not a fiction. In the same person, perfect divinity, fully God, and yet to that added a human nature, fully man in every way, truly man, except that He has not sinned. So again... When we think about this, we see in Christ the two natures, divine and human, perfectly united. Fully God, very God, however the theologians have worded that through the centuries. Very God of God, fully God, very man, fully man, united in one person. And it's important for us to understand this rightly. Christ did not cease to be God when He took on a tent of flesh. He did not cease. He was both in the same person fully God and fully man. So we have to be careful about speaking of these things. We have to distinguish at times when we're speaking of His divinity, His divine nature, or His human nature, but we cannot separate them. The Historic Baptist Confession words it this way. I think this is chapter 8, number 2 of the Baptist Confession. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory. Notice, by the way, how much of this Hebrew's language will be in this description. The brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things He hath made, did, when the fullness of time had come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Took a group of very wise and godly men to sit down and bring that statement together from the Scriptures. But it is from the Scriptures that that statement is made. And it speaks very well and true of what needs to be said here. That there are two whole, perfect, and distinct natures which are inseparably joined together in Christ Jesus so that they cannot be separated. They are joined together. And so we have to recognize that. It says there that they need to be understood without confusion. My friends, that can be difficult at times. 
In fact, oftentimes when you come to statements like we're looking at today in verse 4, it's easy to get confused and ask this very question, how can it be said of this Christ that He has become now much better than the angels? Well, again, if we confuse what the text is telling us, uh, then we'll confuse the theology here. So we want to make clear that we're speaking of this Christ, this King, in His human nature, in His work that He came to fulfill in the Incarnation as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect mediator between God and man because He is Himself fully God and fully man. Now, if you want to go back to that first verse again and just think about it for a moment, why is it that Christ is a greater revelation than the prophets ever could have given us? It's because a prophet comes representing God to man. They attempt to reveal what God has revealed to them. In fact, uh, they, they do reveal what God has revealed to them. But again, there is a, a hitch in this, isn't there? In that they are mere men, speaking to men. But Christ is fully God, coming into this world, speaking on behalf of His Father, speaking as God, fully God Himself, speaking to men. Same reason He's the perfect priest. Because He is the one who represents men to God as being fully man Himself and also being fully God. The perfect mediator. You could not think of a more perfect mediator than Christ. But it's in this work in the incarnation in which He takes on flesh and comes into this world and accomplishes these things in time and space that it can be said of Him that He became greater than the angels. Now again, as you walk through those verses, and we're not going to be back in them in the same way moving forward. So I want you to think about this one more time. As we look through those verses, you see things that are timeless and things that are very much based in time. He is the creator of all that exists. That didn't happen in time. Time is one of the things that was created. Right? But becoming heir happened in time. Right? He became heir of all things by what he did. By the fact that He fulfilled the Scriptures and became the perfect Son of David, the Son of Abram, the the Son. And He was declared Son by God Himself in this sense. Now, I'm saving that for next week because that gets a little bit complicated but also important. How the one who is eternally named Son could also in His incarnation be named Son. So I'm going to have to ask you to continue to think about these things. Pray about them. Read them over and over again. And uh, pray for God to speak to us through His Word. But again, this thing, and as you walk through this list, you'll see things that are eternal, and you'll see things that happened in the incarnational mission of Christ. Him coming as the the perfect uh, prophet, if you will, the one through whom God has spoken through. That happened in the incarnation. So again, but now what about upholding all things by the Word of His power? That has always happened. Right? As soon as there was a creation in time, so this is in time, but I mean it's happened even before the incarnation. As long as there's been creation, He has held it together. If He stopped before the incarnation, all things would have spun apart. If He stopped even for a moment in the incarnation, it would have. So again, we have to rightfully divide these things and look at what it says of Christ. But now we come again to this idea that Christ and what He has done in this work that He has completed in His finished work on Calvary's cross and in fulfilling the mission for which He came. 
it can be said that he was elevated, exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, and in that sense became so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So again, I believe this is referring to this human nature and work that he was given. can't be separated from the divine nature in which he is eternally exalted and greater than the angels, but it's saying in this sense the incarnate word has been recognized as exalted, has been enthroned, has been placed at the right hand of majesty on high, and in this way has become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. My friends, this is not easy to reconcile in our human minds. But it is important to recognize it. Because if you're not careful, you can misunderstand what it's saying and say somehow the eternally divine person just in time became greater than the angels. That is not at all the argument Hebrews is making. He has always been greater by divine nature than the angels. But it's saying this, this king, the son of David, the son of Abraham has become greater than the angels. He has been appointed He has been enthroned. He is greater. This one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, enthroned at the right hand, has now been made better than the angels and the inheritor of all things. And that even includes something else that he inherited, which today's text tells you, a name that is more excellent. A name that is more excellent. Now, many people wrestle with this. What is that name? And they say, well, Lord. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but that's not what this text is establishing. He is, by the way, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is all those things. But here it's establishing that the name that he's been given is Son. Son. Now again, we're going to look at this next Sunday. Eternally, the second person of the Trinity is called Son. But here in this case, he's talking about the mediatorial work of Christ being named Son. If you want to see that, we'll give you a preview. Look at the very next verse, verse 5. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? You see, what the author of Hebrews is going to be arguing is that there is a contrast between the work of the angels and the personhood of the angels and their glory and that of Christ. For which angel? He establishes immediately. What is that more excellent name? Well, which angel was ever called son? And we're going to be walking through for a while because the author of Hebrews does of a contrast between Christ and the angels. But we can immediately say that he establishes that angels are servants. In fact, the word angelos means messenger. But as we come to the end of this chapter, he'll say that angels are ministering spirits. They minister to God's people. They minister according to the will and plan of God. That is not how we would describe Christ. He himself is God. And so there is a distinction in majesty, isn't there? Christ is greater than the angels. The name that He's been given is when He says that you are My Son, today I have begotten you. You are My Son. He said that to no angel. That's the point of the author of Hebrews is making here. That this cannot ever be said of any angel. That this title of Son is in one unique sense to Christ alone. Now we are all sons of God in Christ, adopted into the family of God, but Christ is unique. He is greater than the angels. And this brings us to the second point, doesn't it, of a superior name. 
He's become so much greater than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. As the enthroned king, Christ has this by inheritance, a greater name than that of the angels. Now, he's contrasting again between Christ and the angels, but it doesn't end there, does it? He isn't just greater than the angels. He isn't only greater than the angels. We could turn to Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, and Paul says there, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him. Same language that's being used here. The exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every other name. So yes, the angels are below Christ, but we are as well, right? We serve Him. He is our Lord. And so again, Paul goes on to continue, the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, um, this isn't the only place we read such a revelation. We can turn to Colossians and read through there again. It's a, a great parallel passage to all that's being said here. Again, that He has a name that is above every name. And so again, Jesus has a superior name. By the way, that term, superior, is going to be used 13 times in Hebrews to speak of Christ, His person, His work, His ministry. Oftentimes people try to um, put a theme to Hebrews as Jesus is greater, Jesus is superior. Uh, Certainly appropriate. It's about the superiority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Christ. Now, why is that? We tried to speak to this. And I want you to keep it in mind over and over again. This letter is being written to those who have declared themselves to be Christians and are moving away from Christianity. They have said, Christ is the one. We put our trust in Him. They say, oh, persecution, didn't expect any of this. The road's getting bumpy. Where's a more comfortable place to park? And it seems like, since the argument of this letter is over and over again, that Christ is greater than everything revealed in the Old Testament, it seems what the author of Hebrews is telling us is they were trying to park back in Judaism. He said, you know, we can just leave Christ... Go back to the safe harbor of Judaism. It's a, an accepted religion in, in the Roman Empire. We'll be safe from persecution there. And after all, it's the same God. I mean, our Christian preachers are preaching the Old Testament too. So, I mean, we're fine. We haven't denied God. We'll just quit talking about Jesus. Now, my friends, can you do that? The author of Hebrews is going to tell you, absolutely not. You cannot do that. You cannot turn away from Christ and say you love His Father. You cannot turn away from Christ and say you're faithful to the Father. Because it's the Father, he tells us here, who sent His Son as the full and final uh, revelation of His Word and will. It's through Christ that He created all things. He appointed Him heir of all things. He sent Him in this world to by Himself purge our sins. There is no other way. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the mission that God has undertaken in the Gospel to say you can have the Father without the Son. Christ Himself says that. There is no other way to the Father except through the Son. 
no other way. There is no other way. In fact, as we've said a number of times already in this journey, Jesus himself said, you cannot claim to love the Father if you reject me. We're of the exact same substance. If you hate me, you hate the Father. You may not recognize it, but you do. This is the word of Christ. So again, we want to see, very importantly, this is a message to people who are thinking that maybe we can just kind of back away from Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, Christian understanding, and stay right with God. The author says you cannot do it. You cannot do it. Jesus has a superior name, a more excellent name. There is no other name given, Acts tells us, amongst men by which men can be saved. There is no other name given. And yet the author here wants to say this is especially true over the angels. Well, as we close today, because we're going to be in this section for a while, uh, the next upcoming couple of chapters deal heavily with this theme of Jesus in contrast to the angels. And it's led many people to say, why is this? Why is this? Why the focus on Jesus being superior to the angels? And it's led for many people to, to come up with some ideas on why this might be. One thought is perhaps what's going on in this church, wherever it is, is something akin to the Colossian heresy, which if you remember when we went through Colossians, there was some dabbling in angel worship there that was coming out of Gnosticism. And obviously we don't have time to go back through Gnosticism and the threat it uh, was to the early church and Christian doctrine. But this idea that there was secret and divine knowledge that you could have. And one of the things that they were teaching was that angels were to be worshipped. Angels were to be worshipped. And so the church at Colossae was dealing a little bit with this. And Paul was writing them to say, don't make this mistake. Uh, We think about Colossians as so Christ-exalting and honoring. This is why. It's trying to accomplish the same thing as this text is. Christ is over, more glorious, more honorable. He is greater than all other things. Do not be an idolater and worship angels. So that's led some great theologians like Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who wrote one of the great commentaries on Hebrews, to say, whatever's happening here is something like what's happening in Colossae. That somehow there's been some teaching amongst these Hebrews that has led them to accept some sort of Gnostic worldview. He goes into believing it's the Essenes theology, um, Dead Sea Scroll kind of theology of there was a, a belief. I'll just say this very quickly, just so you'll understand. Because uh, could, we could spend a whole day talking about uh, their theology. But they had this idea that there would be two messianic figures, a priestly and a kingly figure and that they would both be under the authority of Michael, the archangel Michael. That was the, the theory around the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, you can go into Jewish apocalyptic literature to figure out how they came up with this idea. It's wrong, right? This is the point the author of Hebrews is saying to everyone, right? There is one king, one priest, one God-man united perfectly in the person of Christ, one Christ, Fully God, fully man, king, prophet, priest, sacrifice, all one Christ. But I think most theologians recognize that that isn't what's going on here. The purpose of the author of Hebrews is not to battle some sort of angel worship here. And this is why. Assuming the letter's title is anywhere remotely correct, we're dealing with Hebrew believers, right? We're dealing with Jewish Christians. 
And Jews rarely fell into this idea of angel worship to the degree that the, the uh, Gentiles did. Rarely fell into it. They uh, had reverence, in a sense, a respect for angels, but they never, the rabbis were always careful to place them under the authority of God. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls do that. Michael is under the authority of God the Father, completely under his authority. This is something Gnostics didn't always argue. Okay? But the Messiah was under Michael in their economy. This is not at all, it doesn't seem the author of Hebrews is trying to refute some kind of crazy scheme like that. Instead, it seems that he's trying to make a more specific point. Now, I want you to walk with me just one second here so we can try to see what he's doing. It's very important. If you want to understand what this author is doing, I mentioned to you earlier, these first four verses are incredibly important if you understand this letter. He's giving you really the fullness of his argument in these four verses. He's going to expound on it, expand it, exposit it, all these things, add more to it. But here, in essence, if you have these four verses understood and you believe them, the purpose of the letter is fulfilled. If you believe these things of Christ, you're not going to turn away from Him. You're not going to step away from Him. That's the argument here. Now, you may remember, we came to the part where it says He upheld all things, upholds all things by the word of His power. I mentioned to you that it's been noted for 1,500 years that there is a chiastic structure to these four verses. Now, do you remember what that means? A chiastic structure is found often in the Old Testament, a few times in the New Testament. It is a structure which lays out statements, A, B, C, D, and then parallel statements mirroring them in reverse, D, C, B, A. So the first and last statements match, the second and next to last match, and so on. Why is that important? We'll look for a moment at the corresponding phrases here. If you want to go to the middle of the chiasm here, what do you find? Christ is said to be the brightness, look at verse 3, of God's glory and the express image of His person. There's two parallel statements. We talked about those on one particular Sunday. Well, what comes before that? The one through whom He made the worlds. Creation in relationship to the universe that exists. He created it. Well, what comes right after it? He upholds all things by His powerful Word. In other words, those match. Deal with Him in creation. Christ created everything that exists. He upholds everything that exists. Go to the statement right before that. Appointed heir of all things. This is referring to His divine privilege. His enthronement. What comes right after upholding all things by the word of His power? When He had by Himself purged our sins, He did what? Sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Enthronement, enthronement. And then... If we want to understand now where the author of Hebrews is trying to go to convince us that we cannot turn back from the New Testament revelation, look at how the first and last statements go together. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last, these final days, eschatos, these final days spoken to us by His Son. Now what is the basic argument there? You don't have to have a degree in theology to figure this out, right? He says God was speaking in previous servants, but they are not as great as how He's spoken now in Christ. Christ is greater than the prophets. You can word it a thousand different ways. He's a greater prophet than the prophets. He's a greater revelation than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the prophets. 
So what is his point in verse 4? Jesus is greater than the angels at what the angels were doing. Now, why is that going to be important? Because as we will see as we move through this, I'm giving you kind of the preview so you can be thinking about this. Not only were the angels messengers, but the angels were also mediators. Jewish theology stated, and we'll see it as we come to these, that the covenant made at Sinai was mediated not only through Moses, but also through angels. Angels mediated through Moses this covenant. God giving it to angels, who then gave it to Moses, who then gave it to the people. All right? Here's the thing. The new covenant is greater than that because it is mediated through Christ and Christ alone. Not angels which are less than Christ. Not Moses who is less than Christ. And by the way, this author is going to take the time to tell you that Christ is not only greater than angels, he's greater than Moses. He wants to leave no part of this equation in doubt in your mind. The mediation that happened in Christ's completed work is greater than that which happened at Sinai. You want to turn to a parallel argument, which I turn to often, 2 Corinthians. What does Paul argue there? The glory of the old covenant, he says, which was glorious, is so dim in comparison to the new covenant that it's as if it had no glory at all. He's not saying it didn't have glory. It was a glorious covenant. But he says this covenant made in Christ is so glorious, this gospel revelation is so glorious that it makes the old covenant look as if it had no glory at all. Make no mistake about it, the angels are not as great as Christ. Just as the mediation that they gave at Sinai is not equal to the mediation that Christ is doing in the gospel. Therefore, you cannot turn back. There is nowhere to turn back to. The angels themselves were looking forward to see these things done and to understand what manner in which they would be done and to understand them at all. They were looking forward. Christ is greater than the angels as His work is greater than their work. Now why is that important to the Hebrews that this is written to? The the Jewish Christians that are in this moment, why is it important to them? I think it's obvious. It's another argument that this author is using to say There is nothing to turn back to. All of that pointed to this. Just as Paul says in Romans that the telos, that's the aim or the end of the law, is Christ. So again, you can't turn back to Sinai because Sinai is turning to Christ. Pointing to Christ. The law points to Christ. What is there to turn back to? Except what God had previously done and has surpassed now in Christ Jesus. My friends, as we continue through this, I pray you're not just looking at this as theological points. And it's easy to do that, to look through these texts and say, oh, it's these deep things of Scripture or whatever. They're given to you that you might understand Christ, know Him better, love Him more, recognize better and better what He actually accomplished for us. To divorce our practice as Christians from theology is foolishness. That's why Paul gives you in many of his letters a half a letter full of theology and then bases our practice on it. Here is who Christ is. Now, here's how you love your wife. Here's how you love your husband. Here's how you honor him in your life. Here's how you walk in the light. Here's how you live joyously. Not divorced from the theology that came before, but based on the theology that came before. 
In a like manner, he says here, if you want to say that you're devoted to Christ, recognize why you should be, why you should love Him, why you should recognize that there is no one else who could pay for your sin. There's nowhere else to turn. You can't turn back to Moses. You can't turn back to Sinai. You can't turn to any angelic mediation. No previous prophet. And the reason is there are one-way signs that point straight to Christ. One-way signs that point straight to Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is establishing through this whole letter is, if you reject Christ without even realizing it, you've rejected them. Because their purpose was to point to Him. My friends, let's make sure we don't make that mistake. As we read through this letter, let's think about what it's telling us. Let's think about the majesty and honor of Christ. And let's meditate on these things and recognize that they are to point us to a greater and greater love for our Savior, who by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and was made greater than the angels, and by inheritance given a name greater than their name or any other name. Amen.